0: So first of all, I want you to just notice my shirt. I always try to wear clothing that is somehow connected to the topic of the <laughs> evening. Does anyone recognize what this is? Yes, sir. Tardis. It's the TARDIS. This is Doctor Who's TARDIS. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Doctor Who is a fictional character from English television. And he's a Time Lord which means he travels all through the universe and all through time, protecting goodness and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And what he travels around in is the TARDIS, which is what this is. And the TARDIS is actually, from the outside, it looks like an English phone booth. like one of those red phone booths. So that's what's here, but you see it's like breaking. Um, And so he'll just jump in it, and then he'll take off. But the, the magical thing about the TARDIS is, although it looks like an English phone booth on the outside... When you walk inside, it's cavernous. It's gigantic. There's rooms in every direction. Uh, And he was once asked by someone who joined him in the TARDIS, this is impossible, the person said. And Doctor Who said, no, it's not. It's trans-dimensional physics. (laughs) So we're going to take a journey in the realm of trans-dimensional physics, uh, which is a fictitious physics, by the way. Uh, But we are going to take a journey beyond the normal confines of the way we've been trained to perceive and think. Uh, So that's the journey into non-duality is a time-honored spiritual revelation that, as Matt was saying, his wife has been asking, what is non-duality? So if you want to ever give a very quick definition, it simply means not to. Uh, so non-duality is the spiritual recognition of not two, because one can imply another, but not two excludes the possibility of another. So it's kind of super-oneness. It's a definition of the exclusion of there being any other, which means there can only be one. Uh, and in Eastern traditions, it's generally considered to be a very high recognition uh, but it also has a long tradition in Western uh, traditions. There's a lot of uh, there's Jewish oneness traditions, and, of course, a lot of Christian mystics talked about oneness. Now, that's more in a theological context, so they speak about it more in terms of God. But there's still a oneness teaching in those traditions. And non-duality was... The pursuit of non-dual experience was essentially the singular driver of my life for about 25 years, that what I wanted more than anything else was to experience non-dual consciousness, not two consciousness, oneness. And what I want to share with you tonight is essentially... The amalgama- you know, an amalgamation of all the things that I experienced and learned over those 25 years in relationship to what non-duality is, at least as far as I have experienced so far, and I'm still kind of pursuing it, so next year things might be different. Mm. Uh, but as of now, uh, what I'm going to share with you tonight is what I have to share. And it will be less a talk tonight than some of my other more philosophical talks, because There's actually not a whole lot to say about non-duality. In fact, most of the greatest teachers of non-duality, or at least some of the greatest teachers of non-duality, tended to teach utterly in silence. So for many, many years, an Indian sage whose name is Ramana Maharshi taught only in silence. Ramana Maharshi was an Indian sage uh, who taught in the middle of the 20th century, died in the middle of the 20th century. He was Indian. Uh, He came to a certain amount of celebrity in the West because Carl Jung really fell in love with him and wrote a great introduction to uh, a book, a collected work of his teachings way back. And Ramana Maharshi was a part of the lineage that I originally trained in. He was the originator of the lineage that I worked in, uh, which is called Advaita Vedanta, uh, which is a Hindu tradition. But Ramana, for most, For a great deal of the time, he more or less did this. Now, I can't say what was happening on the inside, but on the outside, he sat, and people would come and sit with him. And uh, many people uh, would have very powerful experiences of, of non-duality with him. I never met this person, but I, I knew people who, who had met a devotee of his, a woman, who had been quite close to Ramana. And whenever she heard his name mentioned, in, 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 any, in any context, even if you just said it sort of in a room, she burst into tears mm-hmm. because she had been so deeply touched by the time she spent with him that she would become emotionally overwhelmed at the at the sound of his name uh, so he's he was a very powerful teacher and we'll probably talk about him a couple of times throughout this this evening so the foundational idea of non-duality is that we live in an illusion of separation so if you just look around you right now we live in a world that it appears to be a world made up of separate things. I have my cell phone, which is separate from me. There's people at home that are all separate from us in the room. Each of them is separate from each other. Each of us is on a separate chair. Uh, and that's the way that we are conditioned to see the world. And there's a lot of great things that comes out of that, because if you want me to hand you this paper, I can do it, because I'm aware that the paper is separate from me and is separate from you and that you're over there. So I don't necessarily want to say that that it's all bad. But from the point of view of Advaita Vedanta or some of the Christian or Jewish oneness traditions, uh, that separation is recognized to be an illusion that's emerging out of a reality that is actually one, that is actually oneness, that there is. As they say in the Hindu tradition, there is really all there is is a play of consciousness. In that play of consciousness, the appearance of separation, of identifiable things that are somehow isolated from each other emerges. But what's true is oneness. And so the realization of uh, non-duality is the realization of the oneness that is. Uh, Another famous 20th century Advaita Vedanta teacher was another Indian sage named Sri Nisargadatta. And Nisargadatta's famous book is called I Am That. So the idea is you recognize the oneness that is. You recognize that that's all there is. So therefore, you could not be separate from that. Therefore, you are the oneness that is. And so the book was called I Am That. And it's a beautiful description of his, uh, it's a beautiful collection of his teachings. A Brief aside, I have a friend. Maybe she'll listen to this. She's actually living in England. But um, as some of you know, Uh, I just launched a publishing company last weekend, in fact, uh, or two weeks ago, maybe. And I have a friend who spent a summer with Nisargadatta the summer before I Am That was published. And so she went for walks with him every day for like three months talking about Dharma. And then I Am That came out. And then he had thousands of people around him all the time. But before that happened, she was sort of on her own with him on a daily basis. And I always said, oh, my God, can you please remember what he talked about? Because that would be an amazing book. I just want to call it My Summer with Nisargadatta, and I want it to be the story of those three months. But as yet, it hasn't happened. So we live in illusion of separation. And in the tradition of Advaita Vedanta, the, the basic teaching is all is one anyway. So if you want to recognize that all is one, don't do anything. Because why do you have to do something to recognize the way things already are? This is already oneness. So, and, so in fact, the only thing that keeps you from realizing that this is oneness is the effort you're making to try to experience oneness. So it's kind of like saying uh, someone's coming to you and saying, I want to be a human being. What do I have to do? You're saying, no, you already are a human being. (laughs) Right, what do I do? And you you don't have to do anything. Just recognize that that's what you already are. And then they go, yeah, I get that. Do I need to meditate? No, you don't need to. In that tradition, you don't need to meditate because if you're meditating, you could only be meditating sitting in some kind of a belief that you need to get somewhere other than you are, or you wouldn't need to do anything. So, So there's no spiritual practice required. And When you uh, work with teachers in that tradition, essentially the way the conversation goes is, you, as the person who's come to the teacher, asks, how do you do something? The teacher says, don't do anything. You say, yeah, I get that, but how do I do it? And then the teacher says, don't do anything. And then you say, yeah, I get that, but how do I do it? And that goes on until something pops. And you go, oh my god, this is oneness? You meant this oneness, the one I've always been living, and then everyone laughs and uh, there's a kind of existential release that occurs that if you experience it, you recognize why people have been pursuing this with their lives for thousands of years, uh, because it's such a profound release from the structures of the way we've been conditioned and the shaping that we are currently in. So, Radical Inclusivity uh, was a book, it was a short book that I wrote that sort of popped out in about 10 days and then took another few months to sort of massage into being. But Radical Inclusivity was a phrase that occurred to me as the perfect phrase to describe practices that I was working with that led to an experience of non duality, that led, at least gave me experiences, glimpses of non-duality. And the reason why I thought radical inclusivity was the perfect way to describe those practices is because the way those practices go is they essentially focus your attention on an inside that doesn't have an outside. And then you keep recognizing that you've created a border that separates what you've been told to put your attention on from anything else. And then you remove that border. You include that border also in the inside. And so the process is you keep finding the edges and then including the edge on the inside. Find the next edge, include it on the inside. And you keep doing that until you essentially sort of fall out the back end and realize there's never going to be anything that can be excluded from this. So there's no reason for me to even look for boundaries anymore. And something lets go. I want to describe it to you in the way that I did in, this, in the first part of this book, which is uh, the meditation instruction that I was working with years ago was the instruction, let everything be as it is. So meditation meant sit and let everything be as it is. So I'm going to want us to try that. So just sit wherever you are, here or at home. And close your eyes or leave them open. It doesn't really matter. And just let everything be as it is. Okay, thank you. Did anyone find that difficult, or did you all find it easy? Because ideally, it should be easy. I mean, you're not doing anything, so there's really nothing very difficult about it. Uh, But it's surprising how difficult it can get for the easiest thing you could possibly do. The way that that practice gets deeper, you know, often I teach meditation in a context of anxiety reduction or the, the many incredible benefits that meditation has for your life. But speaking about meditation in the terms of in terms of non-duality, one has to pursue it a little further than the stress reduction level, and. One way to think about how far you would want to pursue it is that you would meditate so long that you would forget that you were meditating and that you would forget that you were a person that was meditating and you would forget that you were a person. And then there wouldn't be a person letting everything be as it is. There would just be everything as it is, which would be non-duality. Then there's no sense of a person being in the picture, doing something. There's just and arising that's happening, and there's no self-conscious awareness of that arising. Because if there's any self-conscious awareness, then you can't have non-duality, because then there's you being aware of something, which is always going to be two. So non-duality is is—it's—it's it's a misnomer to think that you can actually have a non-dual experience, because n- whatever a non-dual experience is, it's certainly not something that someone else could have, because then there would be a two. So the, 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 the way you feel like you have a non-dual experience after the non-dual experience, that later then your mind puts together a model of, I must have had a non-dual experience. But what was actually happening at the time was nothing. You were gone. You, know, you aren't present for a non-dual experience, because then it would be a dual experience. So the depth with which you pursue meditation if you're pursuing it in a context of non-duality is that you go until you forget everything forget who you are forget what's happening you let go of all reference points so you no longer th- there's no sense of time anymore there's no sense of i started a meditation and it's going to end there's just being and nothing else. So I want to share with you about non-duality in a few different ways, but I wanted to give a little sense of the depth at which we're speaking. It's very difficult to speak about a topic like this, because <laughs> it's really so far out, you know, because it's, it's basically going to say that there's, not, there's nobody here having this conversation anyway. You know so so even this is why a lot of people would say, "Well, you can't teach non-duality with words, because as soon as you start to have a conversation, there's you having a conversation with somebody else, and, and that all is happening inside of a pre-assumed reality of separation. So technically, you really do have to just do the sit there and do nothing, but that doesn't really work for everybody, so you know. Uh, so you have to do the best you can with what you got, which is, which is a lot of it is words. So I said that radical inclusivity is, an, is the pursuit of an inside that doesn't have an outside. And that we live in an experience of separation. And then I used the let everything be as it is meditation as, it, as one example. So I would consider it an example of a potentially radically inclusive practice. Because what happens when you try to let everything be as it is, is at some point you realize everything already is what it is. And it would be very interesting to do a practice called let everything be what it isn't. Because how would you do that? (laughs) That would be the tricky practice. The practice of let everything be as it is is the easy practice. Because everything's already what it is, so there's literally nothing that you can do. See, all the non-duality meditation instructions, of which there are many different kinds that that can work, In the end, they're all going to be variations on don't do anything, right? So they're all going to go back, at least in in the tradition I have been worked in, they're all going to go back to the original instruction, which is non-dual is what already is, therefore don't do anything about it. And so the let everything be as it is instruction is an example of one of those. At some point you realize there's literally no way for you to let things be the way they aren't. And even if... Even if you're in meditation and you're making some effort to make things be the way they are, whatever that would mean, that's the way it is. So even if you see yourself making the effort that's not the right effort, that's still the way it is. And there's nothing to do about that either. So there's literally, you come to a place in these practices where there's no way out. That's why it's radically inclusive. There's literally nothing that can happen, including you totally screwing it up that isn't what it is. And therefore, there's literally no way for you to get it wrong. And so sometimes when I, I teach meditation in this way, then I'll say, OK, close your eyes and just do whatever you want, because there's literally no way for you to get it wrong. And, and then people will go, that doesn't work. How could that work? You know. But it just depends. What do you mean by, by having it work? Because that won't work must be a question that's coming from a place that thinks something is supposed to happen before this can be non-duality. But this is already non-duality. So of course it's going to work. Nothing could not work. That's the point. But you see why these kind of teachings get very infuriating. Um, it's because basically there's really nothing to do. And you just keep going and listening to someone tell you not to do anything. and. It's very, very hard to keep listening to someone say that without, you know, getting up and punching them at some point. (laughs) So that would be an example of a radically inclusive practice. I normally teach using the instructions of don't make a problem out of anything. But it's basically the same deal in the end, because if you're not going to make a problem out of anything, and that's the key is it's got to be anything, then there's no way to do that wrong either. Because even if you think you have a problem, you just don't make a problem out of that, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, if you really follow these instructions, you get to it, always brings you to the same place, which is the place where you realize you can't possibly do it wrong, and therefore there's literally nothing to do. And if you really get that, something lets go, and then you just stop. Like something stops. Some momentum that was always you doing something stops, and you just land. And then you're just there. And it feels like, oh my God, how did I get here? Like, <laughs> Where was I? I was in some dream of doing things to get someplace. And, and especially if you're a spiritual seeker, then you're in a dream of doing, some, doing things to get someplace that's already here. And it's not you stop. It's something stops. Something that was the momentum of your self just stops. And, it, and it's just, oh my god. You don't, there's nothing to say. You don't know what to do about it. You don't even know if anything happened or not, because it actually feels exactly the same as it always did. But somehow, in some weird, mysterious way, you realize that something's completely stopped. And it's like you got off some wheel that you didn't know you were on. And yet you still feel like you're on the wheel, but you're not on it anymore. It's like it's so weird, it just blows your mind in every direction. So. There's different ways we can pursue this. What I was just talking about was through the practice of meditation, which isn't really a practice of meditation. It's really a contemplation on nothingness, uh, disguised as a meditation. That's what I always think. I I know I never teach meditation, right? But if you call yourself a meditation teacher, people think you're teaching something, so then they'll do it. Uh, But if I said, I think I'm going to just go with you and contemplate nothing, People aren't going to come for that. So you tell them it's meditation, and then you just get them to contemplate nothingness or emptiness until something might happen. But philosophically, in terms of how we can contemplate this, there's some. I've been on a quest to find interesting, radically inclusive philosophical inquiries uh, over the last 10 years or so, and particularly interested in Western inquiries just because most of the people I work with are part of Western culture, and it can be very powerful to find vehicles for awakening that are within the culture that you are kind of conditioned by. And so in the West, there's uh, a lot of both philosophers and artists, etc., who are very inspired by this possibility of non-dual awakening and non-duality. And one of the things that they uh, often talk about, or that at least the ones that I read and like talk about, is uh, one of the foundational sources of duality. So this is how I always want to think about this. How are we locked in this duality, this, this sense of separation, when, when if we stop, you know, this is what Ramana would say, too. You know, basically, non-duality is what we all experience every night in dreamless sleep. Right, So he, in dreamless sleep, there's no you, there's no other, there's no experience. Right, you, Unfortunately, you can't remember what it is when you wake up. But every night, we all take a little trip into non-dual awareness, according to Ramana. So how are we so locked into duality? And a lot of the Western thinkers that I am inspired by have very interesting ways to bring that taste of non-duality through inquiry. and And all of the inquiries that they're engaged in are essentially looking at the same question or, or what they would say is the same illusion or delusion, which is the belief that there is uh, something that you could call reality that exists separate from you. And so American philosopher named Wilfred Sellers came up with a philosophical idea he called the myth of the given which I've talked about in other lectures, but it's, it's an idea worth repeating. Basically, it amounts to the fact that whenever we speak about the truth of this, that, or the other thing, we assume that the truth we're talking about is somehow pointing to an actual truth that's occurring in reality. So, in other words, if I tell you that it's raining outside, we're, we believe that my sentence, it's raining outside, is pointing to an actual fact that it's raining outside, right? So there's what I'm talking about, and then there's the actual fact that I'm pointing to, and there's a separation between those two. And you know, sellers started that ball rolling, saying, well, that's a big assumption that we make a lot of times, you know, even in normal terms. And in, in other words, so the classic example he used was essentially looking at at a a tie in a tie shop. This was his classic example. You look at a tie in a tie shop. Someone says, this is a green tie. You take it home. You look at it in sunlight, and it's blue. And you go, hey, you go back to the guy. You said this was a green tie. And he takes it out and goes, it is a green tie. And then you go home. You know, how many times do you do that before you figure out what's going on? And so sellers... His philosophical bent was, we need to be more precise in language. So we need to say, this is a green tie in the lights in my shop. What it's going to look like in sunlight, I don't know. I can't tell you. You need to walk outside and find out. Now, another of my favorite philosophers, whose name is Richard Rorty, uh, who would have been younger than Sellers, but I think they both taught at Princeton at one time, Rorty takes a much more radical position, which I think is really an interesting one for us to speak about, which is... He's not saying that there isn't a reality, but what he is saying is that the idea that there's a reality that we can talk about is probably an idea that we would be better off letting go of, because the way that he speaks about it, writes about it, whenever we make statements of truth, like it's raining outside or whatever else you want to say, you have to make those in words. There's no way to make truth claims without those claims coming in words. And therefore, in any given culture, has only the access to the language it has. And the truth claims that it can make is completely contained in that language. So whether or not that language is pointing to anything you could call truth underneath is not as important a question as how many truth claims can you make using the language you have. And is the language you have adequate enough to identify truths uh, that will help you live a good life? Or are you, are you stuck in a language that can only describe so much truth? And then you're essentially stuck in that truth. So Rorty's belief is, you know, we feel constrained by reality. That's, that's the way that we, we're sort of conditioned to feel like there's a reality that's constraining what's possible. Rorty's saying he doesn't know if there's a reality that's constraining what's possible. What he knows is that there's language that constrains what's possible. And we should probably put more thought into the language that we have to use and less thought into the reality that we think it's pointing to. And and when you you kind of get into this way of thinking, it starts to lead you in a kind of non-dual direction because it starts to undercut your confidence in the fact that there's a reality that's constraining you, or that there's ultimately your confidence that there might be anything like reality in existence that in the way that you have been trained. So one of the ways that this works, and, and Rorty certainly, you know, he points in this direction, but he doesn't go as far as some other people in this direction. We experience a material reality. Chair bodies, other people's bodies, computers, other people's homes. And, and we've been conditioned to really experience all that as real. And the question would be, are we experiencing that as real because it's the only possibility of what's real? Or are, are, are the ideas that we have been trained in and the language that we have to use conditioning our nervous system to experiencing all this stuff as real? You know and. If we had been born 10,000 years ago when they experienced other things as real that we no longer experience, were they just wrong? Or was their language and their conditioning producing a different experience of reality than what we have? You know, when we talk about indigenous peoples and the kinds of experiences that shamans have and the ways in which they commune with animals and with plants, are they making that up? What the scientific view would tend to think is it's somehow metaphorical, or maybe it was a kind of a special power. What Rorty would want to say is that they lived inside of a cultural construct that allowed for those kinds of experiences to occur, and we live in a cultural construct that no longer allows for those to occur. So the question is, we think ours is the real reality, but only because we experience it. The the shaman thinks theirs is the real reality, because that's the one they're experiencing. And you know, so this is the kind of territory that people like Rorty want to get into. They, they want to question. And also, in a previous lecture, I, I mentioned Thomas Kuhn, who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Uh, basically making the same point. I mean, Rorty's just building on Kuhn's work in a lot of ways. But Kuhn was saying, when you look at the history of science, it's told as if we kept learning more and more and more about reality. When, in fact, we just kept moving from one way of seeing reality to another way of seeing reality. And then we wrote a story about how this is the real reality, and that was almost real, but not quite. And we kept doing that long enough so that we then had this, belief in a progression of, of gradually learning more about reality. But the real reason we wrote it that way isn't because that's the way it happened, because Kuhn went back and looked at the historical record and saw that's not actually the way it happened at all. I mean, if you look at, at, the, at the science of this era and then you look at the science of that era, there was no progression that led from this to that. There was a leap that led to something completely different. And then it was described as if it was a progression. So. According to Kuhn, we do that because emotionally it makes us feel a lot better to think that we live in a reality that we're learning more about than we feel when we think we keep shifting from one reality to the next and we don't actually know which one is more real than the other. And, and that's what Rorty is saying. We need to get used to the fact that, we're, that we may not be learning more about a singular reality and there may not be a singular reality in the way that we've been taught. And I think it's, it's almost like a pre-skill to the pursuit of non-duality to have that kind of flexibility of mind. You know, however you get there, whether you get there through reading Richard Rorty's rather dense academic books or you get there through having had spiritual experience, if you are sort of irrevocably convinced in the reality of the world as you experience it, there's just not a lot of room for this kind of experience of non-duality. Because it is going to take you out of this world. You know? and, and that's why people pursue it to a certain point, And then they go, OK, that, I'm done. This is crazy. <laughs> you know, you're talking crazy. I'm out of here. This is why I don't generally teach non-duality. Because it just doesn't hold people in the room very well often. Because ultimately, it's really going to want to say that there is no me sitting in front of you, talking to you. And there's no you sitting there listening. There's just an experience of me being up here talking to you, an experience of you being there listening, which is just basically an experience based on a set of very deep unconscious beliefs that are holding this, this dynamic in place. And when when you experience non-duality, you actually leave that. And it's terrifying. It's it's literally like, you know, like you can imagine stepping off the end of a cliff. This is like stepping off the edge of reality. And it's, mm-hmm. oh, my God. And of course, the, to me, you do all these hours of meditating. And you have these little glimpses, right? So what happens in, in meditation, in certain meditations, is you sit. And then all of a sudden, something starts rumbling. It's like a little earthquake. Mm-hmm. And, and more often than not, what we do is go, <gasps> And we just, like, clamp back in. You know, it's kind of like you're in your meditation seat, and then you start to take off, and you grab the seat. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, whoa, and then you go, "Wow! something really happened. It was really the beginning of something happening. <laughs> you know, it's like something almost happened is really what. But, it, you know, even something almost happening is earth-shattering. Because when you go from complete faith in the reality, as you've always experienced it, to not totally sure, Even if it's only a little not totally sure, that is a monumental leap in consciousness. But if you do a lot of practice and you're able to get very stable, to me, the whole point is there'll be one time when it'll start taking off and you won't recoil back. You'll let it happen. You let your whole experience of reality just fall apart and go away and you're just, like, you can't say you're not here because there's nowhere else to be, but you're also not here. Here, what, here isn't here. Here isn't what you thought it was. Not, you didn't really go anywhere, but everything just fell away. So the way that Rorty's teaching, I like... Because he's getting us to question, and, and Kuhn, and, and these various philosophers, and I just love the fact that there are academic philosophers that are willing to go that far out. I mean, Rorty got slammed you know, for this kind of thing, because it's so far out. But you know, he would say, really, when we're talking about truth, we're not really talking about ideas about something that actually exists. All we're doing is using language in a way that is comfortable to speak, right? That that's really what's happening is that language is really just a shared behavior pattern. And, you know, if I say, this is Ed, everyone will say And everyone who knows Ed will go, okay, that's Ed, right? That's a comfortable way for me to speak. If I say, this is Santa Claus, people will go, hey, that's not true. But the reason they think it's not, so what Rorty would want to say is the reason they say it's not true isn't because there's some actual Santa Claus that Ed isn't. But because that, that pattern of language, this is Santa Claus, disrupts us. And that disruption is what we experience as not true. And so, so he says that when, when different epics change, what's changing isn't our understanding of reality, but what language we feel comfortable with. So when we were in the Middle Ages, we were comfortable with the language of angels on the heads of pins. And people could talk about that and no one, you know, you'd be in a room full of great scholars and they'd be having an argument. I think there's six angels on that. and so, I'm thinking there's seven. But nobody's going to go, hey, this is crazy, right? They, this is comfortable language. They may not agree, but the language is OK. But then you move into the Enlightenment era. No one can talk that way anymore. Rorty's saying, not because we learned that that's not true, but because we, we picked up a different language. And now we talk about gravity. And we talk about electrons and forces, and that's comfortable language for us. And there's going to be another comfortable language later. And the reason Rorty's so strong about this is because he he realizes that we move too slow when we're tied down to some idea of a fixed reality. That if we realize that things can change really quickly, we'll be more open to things changing. If the Scholars in the Middle Ages hadn't been so wedded to their belief that they were right about reality. They would have been more available when the first people started to talk about rationality, and they probably wouldn't have burned them at the stake. You know, that was—it felt, it felt reasonable when you thought these people were crazy because they were talking about something that wasn't real. So what do you do with people that don't—in the Middle Ages, if people are talking about stuff that's not real, you burn them at the stake. Uh, they don't do that anymore, thank God. Max Planck, the physicist, said— I can't remember what the the actual kind of pithy line he used, but the basic sentiment was, in order for a a truly novel scientific theory to be accepted, all the existing scientists have to die, because you basically need a whole new generation of scientists who aren't totally convinced about the old ways to, to come into power so that they can finally adopt a new idea. And so, you know, Rorty's point is, well, if we weren't so fixed in our belief that we knew what was real, we'd be more available for what was new and what was possible. And, in relationship to the discussion we're having, that kind of flexibility is a prerequisite to being available for the experience of non-duality. Because if, you, if you're if you just rigidly fixed in, in your idea that the way you experience reality is the way reality is, there's just no room for that kind of radical letting go. We all share what uh, Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, called the transcendental unity of apperception. He said, basically, we're all taking in all these experiences, and then we're forming them into a world that we all decide to share. And then we live inside that world, and we all believe it's the real world. Until something earth-shattering happens, and we realize, actually, it wasn't real at all. You know, just like everybody lived in the Middle Ages thinking the world was flat. Everybody felt it was flat. Nobody was having an experience of a round world at the time. Everybody looked at the ocean and saw the edge, and everybody said, that's the edge. Don't go out there. That's the edge. And then if anyone said, I don't think that's the edge. I think that's just curving. Like, what are you, nuts? That's an edge. Look, let's ask somebody. Hey, what's that? That's the edge. All right, it's the edge. You can ask anybody you want. They all say it's the edge. It's the edge. So this is the, we live in a reality that's created by our shared belief that that's what's real. This is what Rorty's trying to get at. We live in a reality that's created. Our, the tangible neurological experience we have of reality is being created by shared beliefs about what's real that we all share. And we will continue to share them until somehow language shifts or something happens and we all decide we're going to believe something else. And Rorty's saying, well, if we saw that... that that's the way things were working, that it wasn't that we were in a reality learning more about it, but we were creating a reality and then deciding to create a different one, wouldn't that dramatically change what was possible for us? Might that not dramatically change how quickly we could make significant changes if we realized the true creative role that we were playing in the generation of what we experience as reality? So similarly, we're all having an experience of being a thinking thing that's having an experience, and just like the serfs of the Middle Ages said, "Look, it's flat." We're all saying, "Look, we're here." Of course, we're here. And you find someone says, "No, you're not. You're not actually here." What are you crazy? <laughs> Feel it, you know. <laughs> Look at the flat Earth, and then you know. And and at some point, when you get to what Rorty calls the final vocabulary of uh, he calls it the final vocabulary of either an individual or a culture. It means the vocabulary that cannot be questioned. And the only way you can question it is with force. Because at some point, if you say, so part of our final vocabulary is that we exist as separate things that think. If you start questioning that hard enough, someone will get angry. Because there is no vocabulary to have that conversation in yet. So the only vocabulary you can have is to say it's not true, then the other person says it is true, it's not true, it is true, it's not true. But there's no meta-vocabulary yet that can hold that conversation. So right now we don't have the right vocabulary to have the kind of conversation that we're having right now, which is why there's not that much to say about it, because you've quickly run out of words, So which is why Rorty said rather than focusing all of our energy on a deeper exploration of the reality that we're currently experiencing, let's put more of our energy on generating a new language that can hold a conversation about another reality other than the one we're experiencing. So, we all think we're a thinking thing. We all think we're we're a thing having an experience of the world. And we just went through a thought experiment to show that all of that is just more experience. But even when we realize, even if we come to the place where we start to go, oh, I think that's kind of true. Everything is really, this isn't really a chair. Remember, there's that Marguerite, the painter, who, who painted the pipe and said, this is not a pipe. You know, the, the similar idea. Like, our ideas about things are not the things, you know? So maybe this isn't a chair. Maybe this is just a collection of experiences, and I'm calling it a chair. Maybe I created the chair. Just like, you know, you look at this, and you th- there's so many things here that I'm creating. There's a hand and there's a forearm and then there's sort of an arm and there's fingers. They're all pa- they're all things on top of things created by words. And then I have a distinct experience of them. You know, like they say certain northern indigenous tribes have like x number of na- words for snow. Right? We have snow and they have 30 different words for snow. Does that mean when they go out on a winter day, they say 30 things? They see 30 things where we see one thing? Probably. We see snow, and they see many different kinds of snow because their language is creating a different reality than our language is creating. So here we are, very convinced that we're a thing, having an experience of the world. And this is how these conversations go. Um, And then we start to realize, wow, maybe this is all just experience. Right? This is, this is not me having an experience of the world. This is just an experience. And part of the experience is the experience of being a thing that's having an experience of the world. That's wild. You know? And then what you need to question is the fact that there may be nobody having this experience. <laughs> there is no one having the experience of the world. I'm not having it. You're not having it. It's not being had by something other than the experience itself. That that the experience knows itself. There is no mysterious entity behind the curtain that's having the experience. That we actually live in an awake universe. The universe itself is awake. It's not there are things in it that are awake. The reason why we experience is because we live in a universe of experience, of awakeness. And, and it's not that there are specific things that are awake in an unawake universe. The whole thing is awake. The whole thing is an experience. And it's an ongoing, unfolding experience. And it keeps shifting. The experience keeps keeps changing. And there was a time when, uh, Our experience was different than it is now. And now we're in the experience of being independent things that think and have experiences. But that's just an experience. And maybe nobody's having that experience. It's just an experience that exists. And what does that mean then? What does that mean about who we are? Because we are just this experience that's happening. And you you go in that direction, you start to realize, I'm not really over here. I'm also experiencing you over there. I may have a different vantage point on you than I have on my on this, but really, am I really just over here experiencing you over there, or am I having this whole experience all the time? So you keep going. Like, you just hear it once, and it kind of like, oh, that's intriguing. But if you really want, no, if you really want to unsettle your experience of reality, just keep leaning into this. Uh, it was once described to me as like uh, leaning into a block of ice. You know, you want, you're trying, you're trying to get it, you can't get it. You keep leaning in it, it feels solid. But if you kind of keep going, slowly it melts. And you start to feel like you're somehow, in some weird way, getting somewhere or something. <laughs> and then, at some point, you like burst out the other side of the ice block, and, and you're just floating in, in experience and going, This is amazing. And I don't even know who's thinking that it's amazing. And I don't even know who's laughing about the fact that it's amazing. It must all be me because there isn't anything else. You know, which is why Nisargadatta wrote, the I am that. Because that experience is the play of consciousness that the Hindus talked about. And Nisargadatta's recognition that that's all there was meant that I am that. There is nothing else I could be, because all there is is this play of consciousness. So that is the conversation about non-duality that I wanted to have with you tonight.